What's new, everyone? Oh, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Don't sound so excited. I, I'm, I don't, I'm feeling a lot of nothingness right now about the state of everything. Oh yeah? Yeah. It's been long week, long week, ready to wrap it up, get some sleep. And hit the deploy yeah. button and go home. <laughs> uh, yeah, we actually may do that. Well, probably not to production, but yeah, we have yeah. some really big changes coming and we're trying to get them out the door. And anytime someone has thrown out an estimate about when we're going to be done with those changes, I'm always in the back of my head going, eh, doubtful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it happens though. So good changes though. Uh, yeah, it's going to be some really, really good, massive changes to basically the way um, I'm going to butcher this and then I'm going to sound like an idiot, but basically the way we create campaigns. So if you're, it's also to give us basically um, insight into our like inventory, make our inventory more um easier to understand so that we don't over undersell and we know that, all right, well we have all these campaigns and they're all targeting JavaScript. So if you try to create a new campaign to target JavaScript, you're not going to get a lot of ad views. So maybe you should target something else like uh, backend development or yeah, I don't know, game development or whatever all the other um, kind of audiences that we have. Oh, gotcha. So kind of like seeing a estimated traffic or whatever that you might get from your targeting. Yeah. Estimate. We call it impressions, like your estimated impressions. Uh, yeah. And that's it's, cool. It is cool. It's also going to be really cool once we launch this because it is probably our biggest it is our biggest undertaking with stimulus reflex and Ooh, that's exciting nate has gone to town and it's going to be i think it's going to be pretty impressive when we show off like oh yeah there's no javascript on this page and it's <laughs> doing awesome. react things that's super cool did you guys have um like estimated impressions before on code fund Yes. Well, wait, do we? I'm not. Yeah, I think so. But not really. Not in a sense that it's really it's not surfaced, basically. Like we have the ability. I don't think it's actually surfaced any anywhere. So when we're creating campaigns, because this is all in a push to uh, basically self-serve. So. Right now, when you want to start a campaign, Eric, the CEO, basically creates it for you. And we want to get to the point where our advertisers can go in and you know change those settings on their own um, and create their own campaigns. And this will basically get us almost there. That is super cool. Um, so have you... I'm- I haven't actually deployed stimulus reflex in any apps of mine yet, but have you guys run into things that you've had to evolve in there in order to 
to you know grow this feature? So in terms of actually changing seamless reflex, no. Uh, everything from seamless reflex, we have everything we need. What we have had to do is create patterns and kind of just go back and forth about like the patterns we want to implement with it and how we want to structure the usage of it. Uh, like even down to like the naming of like your reflexes, like are if it's a, if it's a reflex for a campaign form, for instance, like do we want to maybe like uh, go up to, go up to the top level? So this is like a campaign reflex and then you can call it in your, uh, form or is it a campaigns reflex or should you scope it directly to what it is so it's a campaign form or a campaigns form reflex and kind of some of the thinking around that and the other thing that's really big that Nate has been doing is an idea of like stashing records and like we are drafts? still iterating through that well okay so when uh, I'm trying to think of a great way to explain this. So if you're on a form and you run a reflex, there is a possibility because that data is not persisted. If you don't, you know, think about how you want to do it like a lot, not a lot, but if you don't like really sit down and consider like how you're going to handle this, when the reflex runs, it's going to um, update the DOM and if your camp if your camp if your campaign record is not persisted, then that data value is not going to exist. Uh, yeah. So there's several things you can do to prevent that. But one thing that we started, you know, well, Nate kind of walked into this implementation is that um, the way this form works is that you create a campaign bundle essentially and then inside of a bundle you have multiple campaigns so you're creating we're creating multiple records with this one form and it's a very very dynamic form so like i hit add campaign and a new campaign form pops up um and i can keep adding campaigns for my bundle right there all on the same page we're doing a lot of uh we're servicing a lot more data too and Basically, what Nate has decided to do is create an idea of a like a stashed record. So we're doing this now in a few other places. So when I when I'm um, needing to use reflex to update a form field, so if I update, um, let's say, let's say I change my um, my audience on this form to I don't know JavaScript developers, then when that change happens, we want to change another input. So the, the available inputs on something else change in accordance with you setting um, that form value. And yeah. we have to kind of think it through that. Um, and like how we, because now we're like, just a lot of like, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah, not the, explaining it super well, but hopefully you can get the picture. I think the really common example that people see is like, you choose your country and then you choose your state or whatever. And like those fields tied to each other are pretty common. I would think, I mean, I feel like most, most applications end up having something like that. Um, like for 
you know, Hatchbox, if you want to create a server um, on Amazon, then we need to figure out which VPC you want to use and so on. And, and those things all depend upon what you chose in the previous form field. Um, so that, that'll be really cool. So that'll be kind of like dynamically updated for you so that you don't have to, I mean, this is where I ended up going and using view in order to build this form. Cause if you select DigitalOcean, I want to display some things. If you select Amazon, you want to see other things. So it'll kind of be a way to do that without, without writing any custom JavaScript to pull that off. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a good example. And you don't always need, I don't think you always need to create kind of this idea of like a stashed record for that specific case, but let's just say you do, then yeah, you don't have to write any JavaScript to do that. And what you would basically do is save a draft almost of that record in your session. Um, or at least that's a wording and we're using Redis for session session mm-hmm. storage. So when we are updating this campaign or on, yeah, if we're updating this campaign on this form and then, you know, changes to that need to affect other things, we stash that, that record in your session and update that. And then you- when, then, and then it all gets persisted. Do you have to, and that makes sense to me. Like you, you have a way of, you're not storing it in your database. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about validations and all that. Um, do you have an expiration on those so that you're not just leaving a bunch of orphan records if the user closes the tab or whatever? That is a good question. <laughs> um, find a bug? I'm not, no, it's not. It definitely wouldn't be a bug. I'm trying to think of when... Oh, okay. I think Nate was doing something around this. I'm not sure what, because the other day he was asking me about... Um, he couldn't figure out where we were setting like session expiration information. Um, mm-hmm. So he he's working through something on that. Cool. I think also when you... If you save... Eh, I don't know. I'll have to ask him. It's unfortunate that he got so heads down because yeah, he would have been able to explain this and not sound like a blubbering. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. When, when we get a chance to talk with him, uh, I'm really curious to hear, you know, how that, that piece works and whatever, but it, overall that sounds like a really, really nice feature to have just cause it is like just a frustrating thing to go build. You can go build your stimulus controller, but then it's, it's often like JavaScript. that's like weirdly tied to, exactly what your your you know your your one specific form because you're like well you know if they clicked amazon ec2 then we want to do just the amazon ec2 form fields and hide everything else and so on and like that's fine but i i really wish in those cases my javascript was more you know repeatable or something and seems like this is a great way of just kind of removing all that and letting, you know, stimulus reflex take care of it all, which is awesome. Yeah, it's it's super powerful. Uh, and we're still kind of working out, like, between us, like, how exactly we want to, like, establish this pattern. I think we've already refactored 
the concept of like a, the stash, the stash record like two or three times. And I think Nate's actually doing that right now again. Uh, because once we, once he created that pattern, um, I then had to use it on two other forms that are tied to this overall change that we're making. And yeah, so we're still kind of just like trying to figure out like what's the easiest way to implement this in a super repeatable way. Um, and I think what Nate ended up doing is creating like a stash, a stashable concern or something like that. And just kind of like thinking through uh, the scenarios of like, okay, well, if I, if I am editing like a campaign, if I'm editing this one campaign and I'm stashing stuff in the session, but then I decide I don't want to save it and I go to another campaign and start editing that, like how do we make sure that the stashed record from the other campaign isn't applied and like how are we, you know, making sure they expire or getting rid of them um, so they don't hang around. And yeah, so there's a lot of like kind of pattern thinking around yeah. it, but the actual amount of code is very small. Yeah, and I imagine too, like, you have two campaign forms open in two separate tabs or two different computers on the same account. You know, you don't want those to be overriding each other or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. So, the nice thing about that is we put a temporary ID um, just as an attribute, like a plain Ruby attribute on the stash campaign. Um, so, that takes care of that. But it also uh, is scoped to your session. And if you open two um, windows, maybe even two tabs, I think it's two different sessions. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's almost the same concept as like uh, doing any nested form stuff like Cocoon. Um, you typically, you know, you add uh, your, your sub records in there and then you give them like a random ID for all of those nested fields just so that there's something to reference. Um, and even though they're not necessarily saved in the database already, just so your JavaScript can reference them. So it's kind of the same concept there. Um, so is this something long-term you're working on pulling out and then having kind of, I don't know if it'll be a feature exactly in stimulus reflex or just like a, a guide or something on here's how you can use it to pull this stuff off. Yeah, we, I'm sure we will can like figure some way of making sure we can surface this for other people to use. Um, I, I don't, it would definitely in my mind would not go into the actual library, but definitely kind of establishing or, you know, documenting that pattern or maybe creating a gem for it or something. Yeah. Well, if you need someone to make a screencast on it, I know a guy. <laughs> oh, Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah it'll, it'll I don't be think cool. I've, I still haven't made a screencast on stimulus reflex yet. And that's one I certainly need to do. Yeah. It's uh, it, like the more and more we use it, we just, we just keep finding like better and better things to do with it. Um, and we really haven't changed. Like the library is pretty stable. Like I don't, there hasn't been any breaking changes in months and we didn't have to, I don't think we had to make any changes for all of the, like this super kind of like complex, like when you think about it, like changes and all this super like, yeah, cause we are, and essentially this is a nested form. Um, we are kind of creating like nested form stuff, but there's no JavaScript. 
and yeah. it's super nice and clean and re- like reusable. And there's also other things we're doing with it. Like, you know, uh, data tables, like filtering and sorting and tabbing. Right. That's super nice. Um, that question comes up all the time of like, how do I do data tables? And it's like, well, it's not, it's not too bad to write yourself, but it's annoying. And yeah. then people reach for like data tables.js or some client side library. And it's, it's never very easy to integrate with those. So using no. something like reflex for that probably makes it a million times easier. Yeah, it does. And the also the nice thing is that if you're if you're having to like shell out to like some third party library to do your data table, like number one, it's gotten to the point where creating data tables is so easy with Simmons Reflex that the hardest part for me is figuring out how to design them because uh, you know, as we like, you know, make them more and more powerful, it's like, all right, well, how do we, you know, how do we want the UI for this to work? And that's actually been the biggest pain for me, just trying to think through that. But the nice thing with using seamless reflex is that if you're using one of those JavaScript libraries, then you're probably sending all of the records to the front end um, when the controller loads. So you're doing like that massive, uh, that massive dump of records, but with seamless reflex, you can, you know, keep your pagination. So you're only sending like 10 records to the data, to the front end. Um, and it's just, it's so much nicer. You're not storing like a massive blob of JSON in your HTML somewhere. Super yeah, right. Nice. Yeah, Jason. Dang it. Jason, Jason. The name of the JSON gem in Elixir that everybody uses is called Jason. And that's almost recent enough for me to jump ship. Yeah. That's pretty you, funny. You should be pretty proud of that. Do you have that on your resume? <laughs> Uh, that somebody else named a library after, after a very common person. <laughs> ah, just fork it and tell people it's yours. Yeah, someone's got to take credit for it, though. I did tell someone today the reason I still write Ruby is because of the Faker gem. Mm, it is my a good one. Absolute favorite gem. It like always makes me happy to use. And there's so many options for fake data in it, which is amazing. Yeah, there's some pretty funny ones. Uh, while we were talking, I stumbled across, uh, this, have you guys seen this backports, uh, Ruby gem? I saw something on it, but I don't know anything about it. It's pretty sweet. It's like, uh, basically backports all the features from like as much as it can, um, from like Ruby two seven to two three or whatever version you're on, which is like pretty awesome. So they add features like uh, array.intersection, comparable.clamp, um, enumerable filter map and tally and numerator produce, all those like new methods that are added. You just like grab this gem and your old Rails app can start taking advantage of all those. And that's pretty neat. I like that. It's a really good idea. I looked it up and I actually have heard of this before. There's also something similar to this. I went to a Ruby conf talk that was on it. I'll have to figure out what that was called, but it's basically the same idea. Yeah. It seems really handy if you're working on a older, um, an older Ruby and haven't had the time to upgrade yet. That way you can, you know, if you're like building something that would really need or, 
be easier if you had one of those built-in methods, then voila, you're good to go. So uh, what else have you guys been working on? Anything fun, Jason? Uh, yes and no. I've been working on my little church chat app a little bit. Uh, writing, not really doing light test driven, but writing a lot of system tests, which I don't really do in projects. And yeah. I have... How's that going? Uh, it's going really well. I'm using like just the rail six system tests and mm-hmm. um, it's been really nice. I'm not doing a lot of like check to make sure this record exists kind of thing, but more like does this appear like when you send a new message, does the text box clear out and the message appear <laughs> and stuff like that. And it's pretty fast to write and I can just rerun it. Like I can make changes pretty reliably and like rerun the test and know things work. That's so, real nice. Uh, yeah. Cause those are like, you know, things where you're like, yeah, you know, it's, it's got to submit this over JavaScript. So we want to make sure that you know, we could run a controller test and hopefully, you know, verify the result, but we don't know for sure if our JavaScript ran and inserted it correctly. So yeah, that's a great, I'm, I'm sure they're a little slower, but like those are, really crucial test for a chat app for sure. Yeah, it's cool. They've run, um, of course they run on the, like, I only have four of them so far. Um, but they're like very involved and run within like a half second each. So it's not bad. It just takes a second to boot up, you know, your browser, right? Do what? It just takes a second or so to boot up your browser to, to run them. But then once it's up, they're pretty fast, aren't they? Yeah. And I'm running headless Chrome. So like it doesn't even All right. like pop up for me. But I've been doing that. Um, how's uh, how's your debugging been in headless Chrome? It's been fine. I've just been doing save and open screenshot or save screenshot or whatever. Yeah. Does it work and well enough? Yeah, I mean, I can see what happened where and gets me through. Um, the other thing I've been doing is, so I went like just straight up Rails testing stack this time. And I think I've talked about in the past, like I just really don't care anymore if I write RSpec or test. But um, I still have never, I've still been struggling to go board with fixtures. But... This time in this project, I am blending fixtures and factories, and I'm really happy with it. Yeah, so I do that too. It's really nice because um, for my system test, I realized I was setting up the world in factories. And if I just moved all that to fixtures, I wouldn't have to do that. So my fixtures are basically like there's not multiple records in each fixture with the exception of like messages. So it's not like there's two churches or anything like that. It's just one of everything. And so it's pretty reliable for me to just be like, okay, sign in user one and try and send a message. And it takes a lot of that setup out. But for like some of the unit tests I've done, I can still like use factory bot and call build and get an object with all the fields that I want without having to, do that there. So it's been a pretty nice little blend. I'm happy with it. Yeah. I've been, I've been doing a similar thing where, you know, I will create 
like a, a regular user, a user with a subscription, an admin user, and have all those as fixtures and then try and use them as much as possible. Um, knowing full well that like the more complex the app gets and the more complex situations, some of the tests may just need to generate the fake data inside of them just to keep that simpler. And that's totally fine. So I end up doing that a lot where, you know, I'll use fixtures for as much as possible and break out to factories when I need to and keeps things fast because you're, you're not always inserting new records and deleting things from your database all the time in between your tests. Um, I think that's been, it's made fixtures manageable because you're not creating and managing a fixture for every single use case. At least you have kind of the core ones and they're repeatable and reusable. It's worked out pretty nice. Yeah. I mean, you pretty much nailed it. The problem I've had with fixtures in the past is like when I rely on them solely, the fixtures get out of hand and it's hard to like piece together how all those things are working together because you might have like a table of messages, but they're just, they belong to all these other random fixtures and it kind of gets out of hand. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it, it does get out of hand. And so that's where the factories are nice for like just doing the one-off thing. And having a few fixtures handy when you don't need to like do anything crazy. I don't know. I like it, but yeah, I feel like maybe the, that gave me an idea of like a good way of explaining when you should use one or the other. Like if you're going to use it in a bunch of tests, just write a fixture for it. And if you're going to use it for like one test, use like generate it yourself, either with a factory or just, you know, use the, the active record new or create and do it in the test. Cause then, yeah, like keep your repeatable stuff in fixtures and then you've got your one-off things in either factories or you can just really call, you know, your create or new methods on your active record models. And there you go. Like you can kind of keep them separated nicely. So the one-off stuff can be inside the test, but your factories could define all the associations and, some helpers for maybe common use cases that you might need to have, but try and use them more minimally. Um, Cause I think factories have made it really, really nice to be able to be like, you know, grab me the admin user and I know exactly who I'm thinking of. And it's always the same user. Um, there's times when that ends up being helpful there. Um, Andrew mentioned he's got, uh, a cool addition to the the system test that he added. Why don't you uh, explain that one? Yeah. As a new developer, I'm obsessed with tools. I want tools, any tool, all of them, um, and tiny little helpers like this. I think helpers are like my, uh, my thing. I don't know why, but I added this to CodeFund last night because I wanted to watch the system test run in my browser because there was, we were getting like a net HTTP timeout or something like that. And I was like, um, I don't understand. Like, I don't know what's called, what's causing this or where it's being called or, you know, what it's trying to get. And I ended up just, um, like I needed to run it in my browser so that I could like actually like look at the source and try to figure out what it was doing and like watch the network requests. 
So I added this line to our application uh, application system. What is that? What is it called? I don't even know. The application system test case .rb. Uh, and what it does is it's basically uh, driven like in a normal um, in your normal system test case setup. You ha- you'll have something like I don't know driven by uh, Selenium using Chrome or Chrome headless. And so what I did is I changed the using part of that. So now it's uh, driven by Selenium using, and then I have a ternary that checks to see if there's an environment variable named watch that equals true. And if it is true, it'll use Chrome. And if it's not, it'll use headless Chrome. So what you can basically then do is in your command line type, uh, all caps watch equals true, and then binrails test system. And it will run them in the browser. And if you don't do that, it'll run them headlessly. It seems real handy. And strangely, like, I mean, I guess maybe it's, that way because they don't guarantee you have chrome or headless chrome installed on your system but like it almost feels like one of those things that should be there by default because it's so handy um yeah i'm gonna have to go add that right away into some apps of mine i like that another thing i wanted to talk about this week i've been using two of andrew kane's gems which are no pun intended like legitimate gems they're so wonderful to use um the two i've been working with are uh, for encryption and then uh, blind indexing so in church chat i've been encrypting phone numbers because well for reasons and it's one of the easier gems because you just set a master key And then your model, you say like encrypts and then whatever the field name will be. And in the database, you just set like the the column to text and the name is the field name underscore ciphertext. And it's been pretty awesome. Um, Because it's, I mean, there's lots of encryption gems. Yeah. Doesn't he also have lockbox that's built on top of that? That like is like uh, very similar to adder encrypted. I think Lockbox is exactly what I'm talking about. <clears throat> oh yeah, yeah. So um, uh, maybe yeah, it's a. I think he may have another library or something that does the encryption underneath Lockbox or something. There was some other encryption thing he's got too, which is awesome. He's, he's got a thing called Blind Index, and so like in my case, I need to validate that a phone number only belongs to an organization once. And so I want to do that at like the database level, but the problem is it's encrypted. So they're two different like records. And right, so, so be different. Yeah. Right. And so what this blind index does is it adds this column. It's the same way you just say like blind index, the column name in your model. And you add a column to your database field name underscore like, BIDX or something like that. And what that'll do is that does generate like the same kind of like scrambled message. So two records of those can be the same. 
And that's what I'm using to make sure that a phone number is not only encrypted, but it's also not in there twice. That is awesome. Yeah. Uh, that's a really cool thing. Cause you're like, there's literally no way for me to verify that this is already in the database without decrypting every single record. <laughs> so that is yeah. a really nice uh, tool to have. And I guess you could use that on email and whatever else you might have encrypted too. And I guess it's like yeah. a one way thing. Yeah. It's really cool. And it's just so easy to use like a lot of the other gyms Andrew makes, but yeah, like literally everything he makes is fantastic. I've had, I don't know, zero complaints with any of his gems. And so if you, if he launches, you know, lockbox over, uh, at or encrypted, then I'm always like, well, I'm using that next time. A strong migrations gem that he makes is fantastic. Um, search kick, PG hero, you name it. He makes some good stuff. We need more people yeah. like that in the community. Yeah, we use strong migrations at work, and it's it's amazing the things that like I'll forget that it catches or that I don't know about even that it tells me about. So yeah, yeah, that happens to me regularly. That's something I put into Jumpstart Pro just to you know make sure everybody's kind of on a just doing the right things when they're creating migrations in their their apps. Uh, that that reminded me of another thing. Um, Andrew put together, which is an awesome list of free legal documents for companies. So if you are starting a company, there's like the terms of service, privacy policy, and other things that he's got listed on here. So there's things like those um, sales agreements and whatever else, uh, offer letters and whatever for employees and that's a really good thing to reference too. Cause that was like one of the things that came up um, on jumpstart, you know, trying to help you launch a little, uh, a product, you know, and having a cookie policy, privacy policy and terms of service uh, template or something would be nice. And having a list of those, you know, all in one place for you to go read through and see what applies to your business is a really cool thing. And just, it's not really Ruby related, but it's, it is really nice to have that. I like check out his list on that pretty regularly. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. That's a, that is a lot of work and I don't envy the amount of work, but I sure do appreciate the benefits that we get to reap from it. Yeah. I don't know how he possibly even maintains all of those, uh, gems. That's a lot of gems to maintain. Um, speaking of, uh, having those, um, we were poking around and I know Andrew, you were poking around the JavaScript and, and stuff for the new announced product by Basecamp, um, Hey.com, which has a few things in there that seem pretty interesting about, uh, DHH talked about there's like a new, what do you call it? Like a new, um, front end approach or something for uh for this product uh an entirely completely new revolutionizing way that we will all need and use forevermore for building our front ends <laughs> yeah uh turbo links 2.0 i guess <laughs> yeah i i scoured through that 
um, all that code. And number one, it was really, I think Nate was pretty pleased about this too. A lot of the patterns that they're using in their stimulus setup are things that Nate has implemented or we're using as patterns at CodeFund or encouraging people to use with stimulus reflux. And the other thing was that it seems like what they're doing is very, very similar to how stimulus reflex works, except they're not using WebSockets. So whatever, like whenever we get to fully see this, because I think he said he was going to announce it at his uh, RailsConf uh, keynote, it'll be interesting to like truly compare what they're doing versus how we're doing it. Because I, Nate and I both believe that there's almost no way that what we're doing isn't much faster. Yeah, that man, it'll be really interesting to compare the two approaches and see, you know, what what makes sense. I wonder, you said they're not using WebSockets for it? All I saw, and this was like 3 or 4 a.m., so you may want to take this with a grain of salt. Right. Yeah. But <laughs> um, they're just using TurboLinks. I didn't see anything having to do with WebSockets. I didn't they don't have really anything in there for they had one channel file but it was pretty basic it looked almost like the basic one you get i didn't see them using anything with um action cable or anything oh wow i mean that pretty strongly aligns with the philosophy at base camp i think just render html and you know have that uh, inserted onto the page or whatever. Um, but you would think, I would guess that they would be using uh, WebSockets for more stuff, but maybe maybe they don't need to. I mean, well, that makes me curious. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I uh, what was I about to say? I sent all this code to Nate, and Nate tweeted at DHH and asked him, um if this new kind of front-end framework they're making would be in any way aligned with kind of what Stimulus Reflex is doing. And DHH replied, unrelated. Hmm. So uh, Nate looked through the code this morning and he said, it looks like they're basically, because the underlying library that really gives uh, Stimulus Reflex the power is called Cable Ready. And Nate posted this morning and it looks like they have cable ready style support and because they have something called page updater. And though they only appear to have support for append, prepend, update, and remove. And the code in one of their TurboLinks files makes him think that they are indeed going for the same behavior as Simulus Reflex, but using standard HTTP to accomplish it rather than WebSockets. It's not a bad oh, way you know to what? go. You know what? I think I saw somebody mentioned they were using HTTP2 for stuff. And I wonder yeah, if that's why that. That, that's probably why they're, they wouldn't be using a WebSocket. If they've already got an open connection for HTTP2, then they don't need that really because it's just as fast. So, uh, Okay, hold well, on. That before might you be go it. anywhere. What, I have heard this term thrown around for a long time and I've never actually seen anyone do anything with it. What is HTTP2? Um, I don't know if I'll be the best person to explain it, but uh, you know, every HTTP request you make right now is a separate 
request and connection and everything. So if you add an additional one, you like reestablish a connection to the server. In HTTP2, it's supposed to be like a WebSocket that's like a persisted connection. So you can actually send over stuff and have the server pipe things down to you um, when the server wants to, rather than you having to pull the server. So in in a rough sense, it's kind of like doing HTTP over WebSockets, I guess, might be a really generic way of explaining it. Um, I don't know all the details because I haven't really looked into it a whole lot myself, but in theory, I think that's the direction it's supposed to go, like uh, more of a persistent connection that you can talk back and forth on. Um, so then, you know, a uh, common example of this is like you open up hey.com when they send you the HTML, your browser parses it, grabs the CSS and the images and whatever else, and then uh, it takes those links for those, then goes and asks your server for that again. So then instead on HTTP2, your server could say like, here's the document, here's the images, here's the CSS and send them all over in the same connection because we know you're going to need those. And, uh, you know, it can be a little bit faster by doing that. So I think that's kind of the high level of how HTTP2 would work. And maybe that's, it would seem logical if they were trying to push that more. And I don't remember how well rack and other things support that but i think that they were they were working on http2 support in rack and maybe puma or something a while ago i can't remember the status of all that yeah that's that's a good explanation it's probably worth noting that uh the http http2 comment was in related just to their kind of their little marketing site that they threw up for this but I would imagine that if they're doing it there, they probably are probably are doing it in the app too. I don't know. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I would. I wouldn't imagine that that's actually separate. If they're doing it on the, if they're going to the effort of making the marketing site work that way, I would imagine they're trying to take advantage of that for everything. And I wonder if it just simplifies some of the back and forth communication on. Um, you know, web sockets where you're kind of, kind of defining your own methods and things and your own protocol. And I guess with HTTP two, you could just keep it HTTP requests and maybe that's a bit easier. Cause I did see, I'm sure you saw too, there was like a request class or something in the JavaScript that was kind of like rails.ajax on steroids and it had a bunch right. of, you know, other things. And then they have a, uh, Similar to current attributes server side, have like a current helper in the JavaScript so you can see which user ID or account ID is logged in and all that, which is something I've been doing for, you know, seven or eight years. So it's nice to see that same approach kind of being built into the framework going forward. And I guess he said he was going to talk about this uh, during his keynote at RailsConf. So should know more. In a couple months, I guess. I'm excited. Yeah, with regards to the you know the user ID stuff, it was interesting because they're saving that in meta tags. Yeah, that's how I've been doing it too. Because um, then I just check to see if there's a current user meta tag at all, 
and then I know you're logged in and then that JavaScript will run um, for the current, the, you know, for logged in users. And I just use that to assume that they're logged in. And if that user happened to not be logged in and that meta tag was still there, the JavaScript would just like do stuff that didn't apply to elements on the page. Um, so that was like the reason I had used it in the past. Um, and I forget like a good example of that, but, um, I did, I have used that a bunch of times in the past. Well, if you use stimulus reflex, you don't need your JavaScript to know about your current user. So bam. Yeah. Right. Cause you're like using server side session stuff to keep track of that instead, which yep. is neat. Yeah. You guys are going to fork rails and build your own, you know, framework now. I don't think Nate would ever do that. And I think if I did that <laughs> and tried to convince Nate as to why we had to do this, I don't know. I think that would be just an affront to his core beliefs. Dude, it's, you'll just call it Ruby on rails on reflex and we'll just uh, apply our words to the, to the end and just keep adding features. I'm pretty sure DHH would come after me for trademarks or something. <laughs> You're going to have action reflex pretty soon. Oh, yeah. Active, wait, or is it active reflex? Oh, I don't know. Um, it's, who knows? It's I the think most they just reach into a hat thing. for that. Yeah, I, I've never understood. Like, it, It's been so annoying to have like action and active as your prefixes because they start with the same four letters or whatever. It's just like, really? Like we can't have something a little bit different. <laughs> Easy to make typos on that. Yeah. 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 I've tried to like think through it in my head, but it just still doesn't make sense because in my met, in my head, the way I had kind of like worked this out in the past was that, Action is not for things that persist in the database, but but then we have like action text and active storage, and action text uses the database. So I don't know. Your your (laughs) guess is as good as mine. Yeah, I don't know. I I think I read somewhere it was like uh, someone tried to explain it, and they were like, "We just use this one, and then it whatever, whichever sounds better." The other word, I was like, "Uh, "Okay, I guess." but it's not a great explanation. <laughs> um, what, actually, what actually happens is DHH makes a long trip into the woods, takes peyote in the wilderness, <laughs> and debates the merits of both of them by carving them into trees and seeing how the wood feels. That uh, sounds exactly right. <laughs> um, have you worked on your uh, RailsConf CFP? I have, and I spent a good amount of time and I am really happy to say that I have a title. Yay. So <laughs> can you share what your topic is? Uh, let me make sure I don't butcher this because that would be <laughs> just so on brand, but I am basically like the premise of it. Okay, here it is. Uh, my working title is the benefits of allowing junior developers to fail. Mm, and I like that. This concept, it's it's for the uh, the soft skills are hard track, and this concept kind of came out of 
a discussion I had with Nate one day where and I think I brought this up in the past where I, I created my own helper framework basically. And Eric doesn't like it at all. And I asked Nate if he liked it and he was like, no, not really. And then I was like, well then why did you let me build like this massive thing if no one likes it? And or except for me. And he was like, because I wanted to give you the space to explore and um, experiment and figure out whether or not it was a good idea. And it wasn't something that like we couldn't like, it's not something like we can't recover from if we decide it's terrible and we want to get rid of it. He's like, but I wanted you to have that opportunity to try it and experiment with it. And if you failed, then you failed and, but you probably learned a lot. And if you succeeded, then we came out with a really nice pattern for building our UI. So win-win. That is a great mentorship moment. I think that's fantastic. Um, yeah, for sure. I had a guy that kind of did the same thing with me early on in uh, building stuff. And yeah, the the first like open source app I ever really worked on, I rewrote, I don't know, like 14 different times. Um originally was just like struggling to get it to work uh, and would rewrite it when I got like halfway through and was like, uh, like, I don't, I understand the concept of how I need to implement this better. And I'm just going to throw away what I've got and, you know, try it again, knowing what I know now. And then over time it was like, okay, it works, but like, I want to add plugins or something. How can I re-architect this to make it more modular and, and whatever. And those, having opportunities to just do that and experiment with things and then have someone give you feedback on did it succeed or not is really good. Cause then you start to learn like, this is where I should have used that design pattern or I tried it and it didn't work and it doesn't make sense. And you start to like piece those things together. I think that's a really awesome experience. So like, do you have things you would, you would change on this helper framework? Um, knowing what you know now, or is it like a obviously flawed looking back on it? Uh, or do you still love it? <laughs> I still like it actually. And nice. the only reason I think, well, Nate has never really said anything really positive or negative about it, but he just said that like when I asked him about it, he was like, no, it wasn't something I personally would have done. Uh, but he said that, I explained clearly and he was very satisfied with the reasoning of why I wanted to do it and why I thought it was a good idea. And the other benefit is that like the, the reason I did it basically is because we have like, you know, a card on one page, a card on another page and a card somewhere else. And they're all implemented differently. And when I first came to code fund and the, like the first thing I worked on was redesigning the whole site and really cleaning up some of the markup. Um, and when I started to realize, you know, like all these pages, like they're using different cards, like why are they using different cards? And I, in my head, the reasoning was because, you know, because, you know, it's just like, all right, I may implement my card this way because I write HTML like this and you may do it a little bit differently. Um, and because code funds not big enough or, we don't have microservices. There's really no reason to do this. We're like, we don't have a style guide. Um, at my last company, we had a, it was, it was a rails engine 
that was basically the style guide and had a bunch of like, kind of like the same idea. They had helpers for certain things, but not to the degree that I took it. But I really liked that pattern because then you don't have Andrew implementing a card one way, Jason implementing a card somewhere, some way else. And then, you know, Chris doing it his own way as well. This way, all cards are the same. The structure for a card is completely the same everywhere. And if I added in ways that you could like add classes on top of like the pre-existing ones and made it kind of configurable. And I, I still like it. The, one of the problems is that I didn't really document anything. (laughs) So there's that. So that's, well, the reason Eric was like, uh, what the hell is because, you know, he just comes into a file that was HTML, like normal HTML, the way he expected it to be. And then he comes in again and there is no HTML on the page. It's all helpers throughout the entire, the entire page is just helpers. And so that was problem number one, but I still like it. Um, The other problem is it looks not amazing, but I think the main reason is because we're using ERB. If we were using Haml, this would be sexy. And I'm not even going to get into that because that is the one topic that Nate and I keep coming back to. I I love Haml and Slim. I don't like ERB, but we're not changing it. And I understand the benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But the main thing about this helper framework that I think really sold Nate on it is that it will be incredibly easy for us to move to action component because of this, because I have oh, yeah. basically structured this in a way that is very, very similar to how we will in the future be using action component. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, a card's a, a great example of a component. So it makes a lot of sense that that would be a, something you could use for that. And has anybody actually backported action component stuff? Um, this to, is, a gem. is it a gem? I couldn't remember if it was like built into the Rails repo because it, it is in the Rails it always, repo too. Doesn't it always like start out as a gem and then it gets merged into the repo and then the gems code's deleted and it ends up being a mess? Uh, yes, I think that is usually what happens, but because it's still in development, I think it is merged into Rails, but they are still actively developing it and it's under GitHub's organization on GitHub, very meta. Uh, and it's still like, they are actively like working on it and like bumping the version. So I don't know how they're like, if they, if they change the version on the gem, is that when they then go in and update it in Rails? Like I have no idea how that's working. I can imagine that would be kind of a pain. Yeah, I'm not really sure about the uh, the process afterwards, but yeah, we're already using it at Podium. Kyle's been building components left and right. Uh, that's good to hear because I am heavily considering trying to convince Nate that we should start start using it. We talked about it in the past, and he was like, "I would rather just wait until it's in Rails. It's not, you know." changing all the time or whatever if it's not changing all the time now but yeah he wanted to wait at the time and i think now 
I'm starting to like want to reach for it and I'm going to make an argument. And like, as I kind of referenced earlier, if I make a really good argument, there's a really good chance Nate will say yes, because he is an amazing mentor. And if he says no, then honestly, like he's probably going to have a damn good reason and it'll be hard probably to argue against it. You guys are making me want to refactor all my code and, and start using it. And it looks like, and this is awesome, and it's probably related to GitHub extracting this, but it, it's compatible with Ruby 2.4 and up and Rails 5.0 and up, which is pretty awesome. Um, that is you know, a lot more old Ruby and Rails support than I expected it to have, which is good. Uh, that's like a usually a new feature like that is like latest version or newer and that's it. Uh, this is cool to see that it works in older ones too. Awesome. Well, you'll have a good weekend and I will talk to you next week. You too. See ya. See ya.